So technically, they said the engine is capable to go that high, but they told me if you change any power setting at any point when you're going to pass 39,000, it can just quit on you. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day again. This is episode 86. Today's guest is someone whose work you have probably seen multiple times. He also has one of the largest Instagram followings out there for a helicopter pilot. He's flown camera or stunt helicopters for movies such as Armageddon, Gladiator, Born Identity, The Da Vinci Code, Incredible Hulk, Tropic Thunder, Inception, several of the Fast and Furious movies including Hobbs and Shaw, Total Recall, Mission Impossible, Point Break, Captain America Winter Soldier, all the Transformer films, Pacific Rim, Wolverine, Bad Boys for Life, Guardians of the Galaxy, and a heap more. It is, of course, Fred North. This is a good chance to find out a little about, a bit about Fred and the work that he does. Fred also holds a pretty impressive helicopter record, which you'll get to hear about shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, lights, camera, action, here we go. Fred North, thank you very much for your time today to be able to chat to us on the Rotary Wing shows. Firstly, a, a welcome, and I guess as a, a first question to throw to you, if this was a, a film and you got to plan the, the opening kind of establishing shot using a helicopter, what would be your favourite setup? How would you set it up? Where in the world would you shoot it? And, and talk us through what the picture on film would look like and then some of the background work that you'd have to do to, to set that up if this was your own film for this particular podcast, if we want to start there. I, I mean, it, it's really a wide question because it, the way it works in general is if I get a request to do a, a specific sequence, then the first thing they're going to do, uh, the, the usually I'm getting, there's two ways I can get the job, is through the producers asking me to give them a rough budget for a sequence or for the movie. So if it's just establishing shots, that's pretty simple. But I don't really like the, the word simple in our business because it's never simple. You can see each time there is a, an aviation accident, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, it's always in a simple flight. So uh, that's why I don't really like the, <laughs> the term simple. And when a producer is telling me it's a simple sequence, you know, like anybody can do it, that kind of stuff. But um, so I always take it like it's not simple, like it's going to be complicated. How are we going to do it? Challenge myself, blah, blah. So the first thing I'm asking producers to give me all the information that they have at the time, which sometimes is just a, a rough area, or they're going to tell me it could be in Colombia, South America. It could be in Thailand because they're not sure where they're going to go. But that's the, um, they send me the scope of the work, like if it's an establishing, for what? You know, what purpose, how many seconds they're going to be using it in the film, how many minutes they need for those few seconds for us to shoot, and what format, 
So there's a lot of questions going into that. So I try to gather all that intel. And then they usually put me in touch with the director. And then the director will send me what we call uh, a previous, if it's a big movie, which is a kind of a cartoon version of the movie that is made for screen directions, the way the sequence is designed. So establishing with a, a storyboard will show me what kind of landscape they're looking for, if it's screen direction, left to right, right to left. So to give you an example, if you're filming a plane, let's say establishing could be a plane approaching a mountain range, for example. But if the plane's coming from the right of the screen to the left, then now all the direction has to be from right to left. Because if I'm shooting the establishing left to right, the other way, the audience is going to say, so did it turn around? Yep. Something like this. So screen direction is essential. So all that, all that info. And when I have all that stuff, then uh, I can help them find the location because they, they, they don't always know how it is to shoot like in Colombia or where, or can we be based? Um, it's always, you need to be based somewhere where you have proper life, you know, like a proper hotel, proper food, proper transportation, uh, cell service. So they're always asking me, you know, advice on where we can get that kind of uh, landscape or, you know, where we can be based, for example. And it's such a, a cliche with movies. You know, you, you see the, the, the camera will be looking at the ocean as it's flying in and it pans up and the city or the mountain or the, the island comes into view. There'd be lots and lots of movies that sort of start like that as an establishing shot. Is there a, a particular, like if you got to plan your own one, and you, know, you could pick any location in the world, is there a, a really, is there a style of establishing shot that, that you would like to, to shoot? I mean, it's, uh, for me, I don't like the boring establishing shots where a lot of people are satisfied with just pretty light and, you know, the, uh, the, the background doesn't even move. It's just uh, epic and majestic, but there's nothing going on in there. So, I mean, unless the director asks you for something like this, which could be the case if they want to put the credits or something on it, but if it's an establishing like after the credits or before the end credits, then me, I prefer to find a twist to it, like there's something alive in that establishing. So uh, hopefully most of the time when they ask me to do this, we have to bring something into the uh, the shop. It's establishing a plane coming in or a car coming in or a person or, you know, some, some sort of action they're going to be due right after the establishing shot. So I would say I, would lo- I love mountains and I love deserts. Ocean, it, 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 it's quickly boring. Unless it's a nasty ocean, then yes, I love it. But it needs to be some kind of presence in the frame for me. Sure. All right, well, let's jump to the to where we are now. So we are recording in April uh, 2020, and uh, I think I went back and checked emails uh, with you, Fred, and uh, 2015 was the first time I reached out. But you've been basically filming back-to-back solid for a couple of years, and it's funny the way it's worked out. This is finally a chance for you to be at home and, and I guess, see your family and a chance to, to catch you. So do you want to talk a little bit about your regular schedule in terms of how many months of the year are you away and and how do you sort of balance that with catching up with the family? 
I mean, sometimes it can be rough, uh, for sure. I mean, I, I would say, on, on average, the past 20 years, I'm on the road between six to nine months out of the year, something like this. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so some years is, is, is harder than others. The, usually, the longest I'm gone is two to three months, and the average is two weeks. So it depends. Sometimes I'm gone a lot, but I come back home. Let's say I go a week and I come back three days. Then I go 10 days. Then I come back a week and then I go. So as long as I'm coming back, you know, um, every other week, we can handle it. But uh, I, I don't really like going for two, three months. So it can be tough. Uh, for sure, 2000, the past even 10 years has been pretty uh, heavy as far as work. But I'm I'm grateful too, you know, to all those amazing projects, you know. Yeah, and, and have everything. And in the intro for this, when I, I go back and record the, the first part, I'll, I'll list off these different movies you're shooting. But these are like the, the world's biggest movies that uh, you've got a list to your name there. But how, how did it all start? Let's go back to learning in France in a, in a Bell Forty Seven and the early, um, I guess, tours it used to fly. Where did you fly tours after your, your license? I did my license in Paris. Um, there is a heliport in Paris called Issy les Moulineaux. It's a little little town in the, just on the uh, suburb of, of uh, southwest of Paris, right on the edge. And that's where I uh, I started to learn. There was about 47, and then but I, I I did it pretty I mean pretty quickly. I did it in like in a year and a half, my commercial license. And as soon as I got out of my commercial license, I got a, a, a job for, to to do sightseeing on the Bell 47. So the first year of my actual pilot job, I did uh, 900 hours, almost 1,000 hours on the Bell 47. So that put me right into it. Yeah, so, I know lots of people would love to just you know get that initial experience so quickly. That's that's uh, lots of people now graduating who would love to get that bulk hours um, straight after license. Yeah, but it was it was not that easy because the guy told me uh, basically this is the machine. But you have to find the work for it. So I had to, what I did, I rented a car and we put a speaker on the roof and there was a, another guy with me and we're just doing all the a little village on the French uh, shoreline on the west side where you have the ocean and all those little towns, every five miles, were going every day selling tickets for tours. So we're going in the main street and say, hey, tomorrow at nine o'clock, we're going to be there. We're going to do helicopter tours. It's 20 bucks a tour. So we're doing that every day, every day, every day. And then doing the tour in the afternoon from noon to uh, sunset and in the morning doing tours. And we did that for like almost eight months. Wow. So you're really, you know? really hustling. That, that's how we were working 18, 20 hours a day. And I'm not kidding. It was crazy. So we had to earn our hours. It was not just on a plateau, you know. Yeah, definitely. Breaking into the the rally filming, how, how did that come about? Was it a, a contact or was it just a, an opportunity that came up? It's my, uh, the teacher, the guy that uh, uh, gave me the, 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 the teaching for my commercial license, he was the chief pilot of the uh, Paris-Dakar rally car back then. So he basically connected me to this. That's how I uh, started flying for those guys. You see the shots of that now, and like it's pretty spectacular. I don't know, actually, there's a good article you've just done with Vertical that I'll, I'll link to there with Elan Head as well in the show notes. 
but you talked about you got a little bit bored of that. I guess looking from the outside in, yeah. initially that would be pretty amazing in terms of flying through those desert areas and the logistics too. How did you plan out where to get fuel? Uh, was that all? Did you guys have to do all that planning yourself? Did you get support from the, the race for that? No, we got support, but there's two different types of work for the rally uh, race. There's the, the managing the race itself. So then you're more doing uh, race management. Uh, you know, you're checking the cars and uh, with the helicopter, you know, you check how many cars pass this and make sure they go to the right place. And, and then you have the medevac. And then you have the filming aspect of it, which is a TV. So I did management flying for a little bit for a few years, and then I, I transferred to film. So quickly before I go to why I was bored, the, so the fuel, is, it's kind of organized. So you have fuel at the beginning uh, you, because you start from an airport. That's where the, uh, the base is every, every day, overnight. Everybody put the tent and there's like a big camping ground on an airport. So 6,000 people, that's what it, it's about on a rally race. So you start from an airport so you can refuel there. And then uh, you have uh, like a 500 miles journey during that day. And you have fuel truck along the road. But the problem is back then there was no GPS. So it was kind of tricky sometimes to find the truck. So I have to say sometimes we put diesel gas in the helicopter, which you're legally permitted to do, but you have to count the hours twice. And you can only do it a few hours every uh, inspection. So you have to put it in the book. But And then sometimes we were lost and then... Um, you know, the only way is to go, you know, like 3,000 feet up and look for dust where the cars are, try to find the, um, the the cars where they are. And if you follow the cars to a point, you will find a few trucks yeah. because the truck is always um, along the road somehow. So now, you know, for the uh, the boring part of it, it's, it's um, the thing with the TV work is they don't really care that much how you shoot what's happening on the ground as long as they get the footage of what's happening on the ground. Of course, if you get a pretty sunset when there is a, a car crash, they're better. But at the end of the day, they only worry, they only want you to get what's happening. So there was a lack of creativity there for me after a few years of that. Would you, know? you swap the cameraman to the other side so you could practice flying sideways in two different directions? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. There were no doors. The guy was uh, sitting behind me, usually with no doors, because he was on the same side, because uh, in the A-star, the pilot is sitting on the right side, so he was on my side. And sometimes he was on the other side, it depends, but, uh, and then you just flying sideways for one month, basically. What did you use for, for maps for it? Did you have good aviation maps for the area, or were you using the same maps that the drivers were using? How did you actually get coverage for, because it, it, it's a huge area that the race covers? Well, you mean for the you mean for the mapping? I'm not sure I understood the question. Yeah, what, what maps did you have in the cockpit? Yeah, well, back then there was no GPS, so we had just maps like um, like a million scale and then a five hundred thousand scale, and uh, we we just try to find uh, you know rough heading time. So if you go at that speed for forty five minutes at that heading, you should be there. So let's say you have to hit. The fuel truck is on uh, a, a given. So on the map, it will show where the fuel truck is supposed to be. So to, you ne- we will never go directly for the fuel truck because if you get to the road, you're not a, and you don't see the fuel truck. 
you're not, not going to know if you have to go left or right. So what you would do, let's say you have to find a few trucks in your 12 o'clock, so you will go to 10 o'clock, you know, going to his left. And then uh, if the wind's coming from the right, you know you're never going to miss the truck because you're always going to be left of the truck when you hit the road. Yeah. But if the wind was coming from the left, you would even have to go even further to your left to make sure the drift will not push you away from the truck. And when you get the road, you'll make a right, and then you'll find the truck. You know, that that's, a, basic, that's a great uh, tip because in Australia, you know, there's lots of remote areas. The same thing where you're tracking and there's nothing underneath you, and the same thing you'll you'll come up to a, a road somewhere, and exactly that you have to offset initially, just so when you hit the road, you know exactly which way to turn, rather than as you said, get yeah. there and then not know <laughs> which way it is. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the way we did it back then. Fred, let's jump to, and I'm not sure where it falls on the timeline, but the, the altitude attempt that you did. Because if you look online, there's, there's not a lot of coverage of it. I think there's one right up possibly on, on your website, but then there's a, a real empty, like there's, there's going to be a lot of people who won't have heard the story before. So can you talk us through the setup for the altitude record and... Yeah, you know, the days leading up to it and, and how you actually did it. So I always wanted to or do that or land on the top of Everest and just to do something. I mean, at the time, I was not bored with my life as far as the helicopter goes, but I wanted to do something special. And so that was one or the other. What happened is the Everest, because it's home between Nepal and there's China and everything, it's, it's complicated to get permission to land up there because of the dispute they have ongoing. So unless you're part of the government, like the French government, they would have never pushed. Like they did it for uh, Airbus when they decided to, to land up there and get the break the you know break the world record. They did it because the French government basically went to Nepal and you know got permission for the capital. And me, I didn't have those resources. So then I decided to do the altitude one because I only needed to find a country where they will let me go that high, which is not permitted for a, a VFR helicopter, you know, as a basic, you know, the visual flying rule helicopter, you're not permitted to go, you know, above uh, 19,000 feet. So, so anyway, uh, I, I, it took me two years to put it together, find an airspace that will let me do it. So South Africa, Basically, welcome me to do it. But France said no. In Europe, they said no. And then my other challenge was to get a waiver from the Civil Aviation Authority uh, that you know was going to welcome me to be able to to fly above the manufacturer limitation on the aircraft itself, because the A star is again limited to 19,000, 18,000, 19,000. So how do you exceed the flight manual without destroying that machine forever? That you, they won't put it back in service. So again, South Africa uh, let me do that. So they let me, uh, so basically we, they gave me permission for 24 hours to exceed the manufacturer's specifications and then go back to service. So it, that was the challenge. And then the other challenge was to find the equipment for me to, uh, to be able to breathe and survive up there, because uh, when you go above 35,000 feet, the air in your lungs expands and you can bleed to death if you keep going. So you need what they call a counter pressure jacket, which is something that will push down, push back. 
uh, the expansion. So you need to have an oxygen system that's easy to get, but that counter-pressure jacket, that's a tough one. Yeah, how'd you find... nobody wants to... I was going to say, how'd you find it? Yeah, is it no. You're talking like U2 pilots or something like that to get hands of it. Yeah, you're right. But so nobody wanted... Like in France, it was impossible to find. So I finally got it on the black market in Russia. That's how I got it. Through, through, it was complicated. So I, I bought it from a guy. Uh, so it was Russian equipment. So I still have it. Uh, I have it in, in my office in, in LA. So uh, if somebody else wants to do it, yeah, just can send me an email, I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> did, you get, did you get sponsorship or did you have to self-fund all this? No, no. So a friend of mine, uh, a good friend of mine in South Africa, uh, just bought a brand new A-Star and he has four hours since new. So he, he told me, just check my ship. You know, it was amazing, the guy. Because the little story behind this is uh, I was supposed to be insured by uh, Lloyd in London back then uh, to do this. And then the day before, so I did it on a Saturday, the day before they, I got a, a, an email from the insurance saying, oh, you know, we, you know, we can't answer something like this. So we were all in South Africa. Everybody flew from France, from all over the world people from America, from anywhere, everywhere, and then boom. So my legs were shaking and everything. And then my buddy from South Africa, the owner, Dave Mouton, that's his name, amazing guy. He said, you know, Fred, my helicopter is insured from zero, from ground level to 18,000 feet. That's, so if you're gonna crash anyway, you're gonna be crashing in that box. <laughs> exactly. So he said, fuck them <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in a nice way. But so that's uh, what we did. That's how we did it. So, you know, but it, it was a lot of stress. I can tell you that, you know. How did you, how did you lead up to it, Fred? Like, I'm assuming you didn't go to max altitude the very first go. Did, did you do a couple of flights in the U.S. or somewhere else first or in France to, to yeah, get to I the did, uh, In France. I, I did some training until 18,000 feet. Um, I did that every every other day almost, flying as, as, as I could go legally. So I just go to 18,000. And then uh, I did just, just standard oxygen with a bottle and a mask. So I practiced. And then I, I did also before doing the events in South Africa, I went to a pressure chamber that the army uh, very nicely um, gave me access to. And I practiced to, uh, to see what's the... Uh, the uh, the feeling of uh, lacking of oxygen if I was losing my oxygen at forty thousand how reacting to this so I did some training before doing it yes because you I forget the abbreviation but the time of useful consciousness at forty thousand feet it's like is it thirty seconds or you less? don't have a lot of time yeah. yeah you don't have a lot of time but you can see the, the tickling in your stomach and your lower you know belly because that's where you have the most blood. So they taught me, you know, that the, the, those tickling and then the, you're losing focus, but you don't realize that necessarily immediately. So they, they taught me how to read my body to know that's what's going on, you know. Now if we had a walk down the tarmac and looked at that machine before you took off, talk us through what the machine looked like. You know, I'm guessing you, you stripped everything out of it, but how much was left? Uh, how much, how did you work? How much fuel to take? I mean, the... Uh, yeah, I had the team with me, so they really helped. I mean, they really stripped everything. All was gone, dashboard, only essential space. We stripped everything we could. So there was not much left. 
pretty, if you go on the website, I think there's some pictures from the dashboard. You can see there's not, nothing left in there. So I was as light as I could be. For the few, I made the calculation based on the previous record that was done by a French guy. He, he really helped me, you know, make the calculation because he explained to me that, let's say uh, the machine that I had was 800 horsepower at sea level. And he explained it to me when you are at 40,000 feet, those 800 horsepower becomes 130 horsepower. There is no, no power anymore on those engines. They're not made for that. But you still have the same weight. Yep. So he said, you're not going to use any fuel. That's what he said. And then I made a calculation based on, on that conversation and the calculation that he gave me. I took off with what would have been half hour of fuel at cruising speed at sea level. And I flew for an hour and 25 minutes with that fuel because of the altitude. Now, it, it, look, it's a long way up. Like you, so you'd been up to 18,000 you know, several times training to then go and put another 10, or sorry, another 20,000 feet on top. So what was it like climbing through 20,000 feet in terms of the engine instruments, your rate of climb? Yeah, in terms of if we were sitting in the aircraft with you uh, and you're a, a regular, you know, A-star or squirrel driver. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I was doing a lot of crazy flying before I did that one. But the, uh, what happened is the, the airspace, I was in Cape Town airspace on Class Bravo. And those guys put me just uh, on top of the airport and they were paying attention to me. I was with them, but they didn't bother me too much. But so it was not too bad. I mean, for the radio, that was not too bad. And then for the, the thing is, it took me uh, like eight minutes to go to 20,000 feet because I was so light. But there is a little event that happened to me on the way up. What happened is I was so stressed out when I was doing it at the, at the beginning, you know, of course, I was so stressed out. Like I was almost panicking that I had to do this. Like I was forced to do it now. You know, you prep something for two years and when, when the day happened, it's like, shoot, you know, what, why did I do that? Or what? You know, all these questions and doubts and things. So anyway, I was stressed out. And what happened is at the parachute, with me, but the, the, the thing, I, when I put it on, instead to put my, my um, seat harness under the parachute, the, uh, sorry, the parachute, the, um, the uh, counter pressure jacket, apologize, the counter pressure jacket. So what I did, I should have put my harness, the seat harness under the counter pressure jacket. But because I was panicking and stressed out and nobody really saw it, you know, I had a safety guy, but he missed it for a reason. And then I basically made the mistake to put the, the seat harness above it, like, like you do every day when you go in the carpet. You just put it above whatever you have. But the problem is when the jacket started to inflate, then, um, you know, the, 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 the comfort jacket basically did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. You know, it went against my lungs and I couldn't breathe anyway. <laughs> okay. So it was 20,000 feet. And then the problem is you have the helmet and I have the oxygen mask, so you could not see down what's going on. Usually you just put your face down, and then I would have seen immediately what's going on. What happened is I was just passing out. I just saw the stars, and I was passing out. I didn't understand I was going to lose conscience, you know. And I called the ground team, and I, I said, guys, I don't understand. I, I'm going to pass out. I'm, I'm lacking oxygen. I don't understand what, what they're going to do for me, you know. So then I checked my oxygen bottle and it was full 
and but for a reason I couldn't breathe. And then it took me a little bit, and and then I realized that it's because the the, the counter pressure jacket was starting to inflate, but because of the the straps on the seats, it was they couldn't go anywhere, so it was going against my lungs, and I couldn't breathe. So now I didn't know what to do because I needed a counter pressure jacket to go higher. So I I, I released my my straps at twenty thousand feet, which you don't want to do. And open, basically, I opened the counter pressure jacket a little bit, and then it was like a it was like a relief, like and and staying like breathing the air. So it was you know it was crazy um, feeling at the time. So when that event was, and then I put my seatbelt back and everything. But I mean, it was it was not easy because at twenty thousand feet, you're so stressed out, and it was kind of a challenging situation. And then I, you know, from that event, then. 20,000 feet, I went to, um, so it took 12 minutes to go to that, and then, eight, eight, 10 minutes to go to that, sorry, and then it took me an hour and 20 minutes to the other 20,000, you know. So when I was almost to the end, I was at uh, 40,000 something, then the, um, there's a 747 from South African Airways that I heard the radio, the guy said, hey, you know, what is that little dot on my radar? He was talking to Cape Town Tower. And then Cape Town Tower, talking to the guy, but I'm on the same frequency. He said, oh, just a crazy French guy doing, trying to break the world record. And I said, hey, guys, I'm here. <laughs> I can hear that shit. So anyway, so the 747, it was, it was a joke, but the 747 said, can I do a flyby? But he's not asking me. He's asking the guy at the tower. The guy at the tower said, yeah, go ahead. I said, no, 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 no. Don't come too close to me. I'm dying climbing. I don't want you to creating vortex or something. The guy came so close for me. First of all, I didn't see him until he was right there, right? Because at the speed, I was going uh, about 40 knots, cruising speed. That was my speed at that time. Full speed, full power, 40 knots. The guy came maybe, I'm not kidding, like 300 feet from me. At oh, yeah. 500 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> And then, he, 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 you know, he, he, he moved the wings a little bit and say hi and say, hey, good luck. And, and he was so cool, the guy. But I was so stressed out. And then, so he did that. Then he goes, he goes away. And then, from nowhere, this guy came, he, he came from the South African uh, army with a jet. And I'm not kidding. He came from behind me. And then he made a, a U-turn in front of my cockpit, but so damn close to me, I thought I was going to pass out. Because the noise of the jet that came from nowhere, when just you so stretched out, I mean, he was so, and the guy didn't want to say hi. And in fact, on the, on the website, you can see the pictures. It's from him. You can see the, all the pictures from out there because he put a camera and he took all those pictures. Yep. So I mean, it was cool. All, all the South African people have been amazing for that event. So kind, nice. Helpful. I mean, I only have compliment to say. You know, it was amazing. Look, they definitely, yeah, it's outside the normal box of things. But talking about outside normal things, so you, you're wearing a parachute. What sort of preparation had you done, and how how are you going to jump out of the the aircraft? Were you just going to leave it on full power and then hopefully it climbed away so it didn't descend on top of you? Or well, uh, you know. It, it was more for my mom than anything else. She didn't want, you know, she didn't want me to do it. And she said, well, if you're going to do it, you need to wear a parachute. And I said, look, mom, there's 99.9% chance there's no way I can get out of it. 
And then she said, I don't give a shit. You're not going to do it until you wear a parachute. So it took me like six months to find the damn parachute that I can have and the one that can open on its own. Like if I was going to pass out or let's say, let's say something happened and I, I can get out and you just jump. Let's say you succeed all that stuff, but you pass out because you lack of oxygen or something. And so the parachute has to open on its own. So I found that, you know, that high altitude parachute. And I mean, 99% of the chance, if I would have done that, I would have done it in the ocean. It would have been over anyway, but for my mom. So I just do the parachute thing, but I didn't plan to use it. Had you parachuted before? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't have a lot. I have like 30 jumps. So I could have jumped, no problem. It's easy, you know, for me just to, to jump and land somewhere. I know how to, you know, to, to, to uh, control the parachute just to land somewhere. But in this situation, it would have been nasty. We did, um, through the Defence Force, we did 120 hours on a little two-seat aeroplane as part of our course. And yeah, for the 120 hours, we'd, we'd carry a parachute and this little thing, and you were going to, you know, pop the canopy and then try and climb out and, and jump out. But none of us had ever did ever parachuted. <laughs> we carried this parachute with us uh, every flight for that for training. So that's been my only uh, contact with parachutes. I was going to say, what was the the handling like? Like you always hear, you know, when you do aerodynamics and and people talk about doing high DA operations about the the control response. But I can only guess at forty thousand feet plus, what did the aircraft feel like? I mean, it was like sloppy. It was like nothing is happening lazy lazy control like uh, you move the, the cyclic that doesn't do much but the machine reacts still you still fly the aircraft not really the problem it just it just takes forever the only problem is the rpm if you go down the rpm goes super fast because there is no drag okay yep. um but 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 rather than that it, it's not you can still control the machine you just have to be more careful all right, so you got to, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Fred, but you got to 42,500 feet on the uh, on the altimeter. Yeah, uh, yeah. On, on the way down, and again, these are the notes I made you know, five years ago when I first did the interview notes for this. So I haven't actually read your website in the last week. I apologize, I should have gone back and checked. But you did it flame out or did you shut it down on the way down? No, the engine shut down and so on. Okay. So at 42,500 feet, I lost the power and I just started the auto-rotation. It took me about four minutes to get down, so it was pretty quick. And but I restarted the engine at fourteen thousand. So but had you the, planned? At the, at the time, had you planned to start descending at that yes. point, or you were still climbing, and it, that's just as far as the engine went? It just flamed out at that height. So the, the uh, turbo maker Saffron now uh, back then told me that the engine has been tested until forty-five thousand feet on the bench. So technically, uh, they said the engine is capable to go that high, but they told me if you change any power setting at any point when you're going to pass 39,000, it can just quit on you. Yeah. Um, so I knew it was it may happen, but it was not sure. So what happened when I 42,500, I was a little bit stressed out. I lowered collective because there was a turbulence. And when I lowered my collective, that's when the engine shut down. Okay. But again, because I'm so light, and the RPM going so fast because there's no drive. The auto rotation was a piece of cake. The problem was more the overspeed yeah. than anything else. So it was more to control that. So I had to basically keep, keep my collective up to make sure I'm not going to overspeed the blades and stuff. So it was just more that. So after my, 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 my problem was not that. The problem was 
Uh, I was going 35 knots cruising speed up there. And the wind was maybe 50, 60 knots. So I was going backward. And I was getting over the ocean. And I thought I was going to end in the water, which was not pleasant. Because if you know the Cape, you don't want to end there. There's some sharks, there's some huge waves and stuff. I didn't want to crash into the water. So I was panicking that was going to happen. So I was trying to not exceed the VNE, the max you know, speed, and then the, uh, just the aircraft VNE, and then trying to come back to, uh, to land. So it was just those challenges. And at the end, you know, because I was dropping 10,000 feet a minute, it went. It became pretty normal pretty quickly. As soon as I got to twenty thousand, it was piece of cake. I mean, in a sense, when I say that, you know, it, it was just manageable. Yep. But what? So I gained control of the aircraft a little bit better, and then I restarted the engine at fourteen thousand. It was super fast because the the, the 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 blades were already at speed. So it was, basically, you don't see anything. You only see the gauge going up, the T four, the temperature of the turbine just going up. You don't feel anything. Everything is already spinning. And then, and then at the time, only have a few liters of fuel on board. Like it was almost zero on the indicator. So I was waiting to get a, another engine failure, second one, on one flight, which is pretty rare. And um, and then and then I I didn't get it. So I I came close to the airport, and then I did a flare, and I landed where my crew was. But what happened was was bizarre. Is I had so much pressure for the whole flight. I mean, pressure, mental pressure, okay? So I was so stressed out, and I had to control that and manage that. So what happened is when uh, I was flaring the machine to about 100 feet above the ground, my body started to shake, like uncontrolled shake. And then when I landed, the, uh, the engine was still running. I started to add the breakdown. I started to cry. My body was shaking, and it took me 45 minutes to recover from that state. You know, but basically uh, an overflow. It was too much for the body. The body said, "That's it. I'm done." But the but amazingly, it did happen when I was a few seconds from the ground. Yeah, the brain knows. You know. Because that, that's what I was going to say. It's like once you shut down and stepped out on the ground, yeah, like those next couple of minutes or even, I don't know, that buzz would have oh, gone on for hours. <laughs> no, it took me 45 minutes. I mean, somebody had to shut down the machine for me and they, they, I, I stayed on the seat. I was crying, crying, crying. It was just, uh, just you know, the limit of my body and my mental state. That was it. But for me, there was the line that I crossed and that was it. Did that then open any doors or that was just a side project that you'd already had that you were working towards? Like afterwards, there's not, there's not that much coverage of it. In France, there was a lot of coverage back then, but in Paris, they, I was on TV and there was a lot of stuff back then, but there was no iPhone, you know? Yep. So it's not like we had cameras and stuff. We have tapes, but, you know, it's, it was not digital. So, you know, it, it's different times. So there was a TV crew there. There was a camera crew. So they're those guys, but it was from an agency. So they did all the coverage, sold it to the French network. And, and then I got some, some um, magazines, you know, stuff like that. And then it was it. Yeah, pretty amazing story. <laughs> so that's uh, pretty unique. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's jump that for the time we've got left. 
You probably are. If, if you look at the, the names of the video, or sorry, the, the movies and films you've been in recently, they are like the, the world's biggest blockbusters. Can you maybe just talk to you know the average person who's out flying R44s on scenic flights or flying squirrels and utility work? What are some of the biggest differences or things that we wouldn't think about in, in film work? So what are some of the misconceptions and, I guess, tips if, if someone was trying to you know, fly film work? What don't we see that happens behind the, the scenes? You mean for aircraft types or...? No, so for filming, like us as, I guess, helicopter pilots and we're watching movies and we're watching the filming and watching helicopters and movies, what are the things that we wouldn't expect that happen behind the scenes? And I guess I'm leading down the track of the amount of preparation that goes into it and the risk management. I mean, yes. I mean, it's, it's basically um, the, the, the goal is to get the shots that they need and... They, they don't really give, they don't really care about your problems. They are their own. So you can't just say hey, it's too windy or something. You always have to offer an alternative solution to get the shot. So if it's too windy, you, uh, I mean, you have to offer another angle to get it, headwind, or you have to find a way, even if they do have to compromise, you do have to compromise. So there's a lot of pilots out there that want to do movie work, but they, they, they think too much about themselves. They're flying. Like they, okay, where, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And in fact, it's the wrong approach because what you need, you need to know what to do yourself. You need to know what they need. You need to go into their heads. So you need to do your homework before you do a job for a, a director. And I still do that today. If I get a phone call from a director that I, I never worked with, I'm going to watch the five movies it has done previously to see what style, you know, what kind of, how he moves the camera, um, what is um, his vision, what is uh, how he managed his, his uh, connection with the camera. So I can understand the guy's vision, right? And then when he's going to ask me for a question, then I'm going to know what he's talking about. You take a guy like uh, Michael Bay, which is uh, very famous and successful, one of the you know, most successful directors in Hollywood, but he, he has a style, a very, very specific style. And, you know, he, he's always telling me like, oh, hey, hey uh, Fred, you know, we're going to do this sequence, so do your thing. So I do my thing, but it's for him. You know, I do, I'm not doing my thing. In fact, he's, he's, he's calling it like this, but in fact, I do something very specifically for him. That's what he meant by that. So you need to do your homework. So each time those helicopter pilots have a job, they need to see what that, those producers and those directors did before that job. What kind of, even if it's a TV show, even if it's documentary, just look at the style of the guy. So then you can give the guy the, the same sense and feeling instead of, you know, just where you want me to go. It comes across that you're very much in the film industry but you just happen to bring a helicopter to the party as opposed to being a helicopter person who then does filming. It almost comes like whether you were bringing a particular type of camera or lighting, the way you talk about it, it comes across that you are a filmmaker who then just happens to use a helicopter. Yeah, you're right. It's like a dolly grip. So you're just a, a, a cameraman. You know a cameraman because you have a cameraman, but your cameraman and yourself become one 
um, to move the camera. You're just moving the camera. And in fact, for the for the director out there, they know what they're doing. They're not seeing the helicopter as a platform. They, it's just uh, it's just another toy, like for the camera to be moving around. And you need to be moving this camera the way they need them to have the camera moving to get the shot. And people think we do stupid stuff and we we risky people and we cowboys and stuff. This is so far from the truth. You know, we prep so much. We do risk assessment. We hire the best team, we do ground scouts, we check everything, every detail. We get all the permits we need to get to fly low. We never go below those permits. You know, we, we always do uh, bring the, uh, the Civil Aviation Authority to our sequence. We discuss with them. It's a team effort, but for sure, my helicopter, like the, the flying part, it doesn't exist. Like, you have to deal with it. And keep it for yourself. Yeah, Fred, can you you take us through? Like you've done a whole heap of things of it's head to head with race cars or base jumping and on Instagram there's a picture of you flying below the deck line of a of an aircraft carrier. Is there a, a couple, maybe just a top three kind of shots that you really enjoyed doing or that you felt were the most challenging? Yeah, I mean I yeah, I, I love uh, filming moving moving targets, I will call it. I love uh, high-speed cars, car chase, high-speed planes, you know, aircraft carrier, all that stuff. Anything moving, I love filming. I don't really like too much filming uh, static things because then I have to create the energy. I have to find a way to create the energy, which is challenging and can be fun. But in general, I prefer filming and moving uh, a train, um, a guy jumping in a parachute. I'm pretty famous for filming car chase because of the Fast and Furious, but Anything that will go fast and, you know, low, I'm the man for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've definitely got a following on Instagram and some really good uh, quick shots there. Like some of those ones you've got of, uh, you know, doing a big flare down a, a, a street with the buildings beside you and then a couple of the other shots where you're actually flying the camera ship and someone else is filming you doing the, the filming as, you, as you're throwing it around. It's, uh, you know, it's yeah. enjoyable as, I don't know what the general public thinks, but as a, as a helicopter person and kind of picturing what the helicopter's doing it's it's fun watching the output that you that you get out of it yeah i mean the truth is is when i do it it's 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 not even a question if it's fun or not for me when i do it i'm so focused and it's it's very there's no room for error so i only enjoy it when i'm done but when i do it it's not a necessarily a fun thing to do because there's so much pressure there's no error, you know, it, and we're so close from, from things. And you have to understand, it's not about the helicopter at the time. They want me to do something. I'm, I'm shooting something. I'm filming, or they're filming me, or I'm filming something, which means I'm not deciding my fly path. I'm not deciding uh, what I want really to do. So I need to uh, do what they want me to do in a safe way. So it doesn't necessarily put you in a place where you want to be. Now, because I have to do it safely, I have to do it, you know, where it's going to be okay for me. But you know what I mean? It just puts you in a place where it's not always super comfortable. So the fun comes after. <laughs> no, it sounds like, and like anything, there's always a lot that happens behind the scenes in terms of preparation. When you, when you see someone you know, do a slam dunk on a basketball court and you kind of see it last couple of seconds, it's obviously years and years of training uh, to get to that last point. With the... Yeah. 
I guess the industry is changing a little bit. We've gone from all these films using QEs into now starting to use Blackhawks. And there's obviously a bunch of civilian Blackhawks out there now available for, for film work. But if you roll back a couple of years ago, the films that used Blackhawks would have been actually using uh, US Defence Force Blackhawks and pilots, possibly, or any Blackhawk you see in the military, sorry, in the, in the movies, it's always been a, a civilian flown Blackhawk? I mean, the the Blackhawk, the UE, I mean, it, 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 because it's so recognizable as a Vietnam era machine, if they're going to do a, a, a military older look, they're going to want the UE. But if they want a more modern uh, look, they're going to want the Black Hawk, but not everybody can afford a Black Hawk because the Black Hawk is almost $6,000 an hour. And most of those guys, uh, they charge four hours per day. So you're talking $24,000 a day just for the machine. Even if you get a discount at $22,000, well, I mean, it's just one day. Yep. So there's not that many. So we, we do use them, but I usually do a couple of movies a year and it can be a few days, it can be two weeks, it can be three weeks, but it's not something that common tv shows may use it one day you know the ue to each cheaper is a is, is a third of that price you know a little bit less than half like between a third and a half so it's way more friendly for financially and otherwise they're going to use like an a-star we put some machine guns you know rocket pods on the a-star itself we can use an agusta 109 stuff like that there's the black hook some people are advertising for filming work, but the truth is it's more an image than a real business tool. And you does, know? do the sound producers still put a, a Huey noise track over the top? Well, I mean, we're not, in, we're not controlling that, unfortunately, <laughs> but each time I do a show, I'm always asking to talk to the sound person and I always make time for that guy to go into the proper machine and we do a 10-minute flight and we, we do all speed and flare and stuff so he can, you know, record the proper noise for the sequence. But sometimes you never see that guy. And then they just uh, put the Bell 47 for Black Hawk, yep. you know, which is terrible. Awesome. All right, Fred, thank you so much. You've you shared a heap of stuff there. Is there anything else you, I guess, while I got you, anything else that uh, you kind of love getting out to the rest of the helicopter population about what it is that you do? Just quickly, I'm going to uh, just do a little uh, couple of minutes on the drone versus helicopter. Yeah, for sure. A lot of pilots are asking me, you know, if the drone are threatening our world. And the, the response is always the same. You know, drones are drones, helicopters are helicopters. So because drones are fairly new, people think they can use a drone for everything. And first of all, as a lot of you guys may experience, it's not that easy to fly a drone on a, on a closed like, or a very confined area. It's very easy on open space, but it's not easy at all in a confined space. So what happened is on a movie set, it's always confined. And again, the drone has the same issue than the helicopter. The director doesn't really care about your problems. And drones are plenty. You know, they don't have range like us, a distance. They don't have fuel range, right? They only have a 8 to 10 minutes, 12 minutes battery time. And, and they don't have the uh, depth of field. They don't have spatial orientation. They're lacking a lot of what we have. So that's why it's a different tool. 
and they always do shots that we cannot do and vice versa. So to the helicopter pilots out there, keep doing what you're doing. The drones will keep doing what they're doing. But there's no really, uh, I would say the overlap for the filming part is maybe 10%, but that's it. And a lot of people asking, you know, why we're not using a drone for this or this shot. They don't understand that the drone camera lens package is such a small camera and a small lens versus what we have. The lens itself that we have that is a long zoom to compress frame and, and, and to make it look amazing. Just the weight of the lens can be 60 pounds. And the whole drone weight can be 60 pounds. So we're not talking about the same thing. So I just wanted to put it out there. Excellent. Okay, tops. Well, Fred, look, thank you. I'll, I'll let you uh, get back to your family there and enjoy the time at home while you can make the most of it. Thank you. Uh, before you hit the road. And, and again, we're looking now, maybe just a little bit more educated, but when we watch those shots in the, in the film, sometimes it's hard. No I think it's different when, possibly when you watch a film and you break it apart and you're sort of thinking about how that person's getting a shot. Because often I find I watch a film, it's a, it's a different part of your brain to use when you're watching the film for the story and then actually trying to watch the film for the, the, the particular shot that's been done. But, uh, yeah, it'll be fun going yeah. back. I haven't seen the uh, Bad Boys for Life yet. I'll catch that shortly and, and check out some of your work. Yeah, it, 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 it's a pretty fun movie, and that sequence was pretty good. So what we can do, if you want, in, in, in the future, you, if, if some of your followers have questions, we can do another one of those, and I can be more specific on what they uh, want to know. That sounds great. That'd be awesome. Okay, thanks, Fred. Really appreciate You're it. Welcome. You're welcome. All right, thank you, Mike. Take care. If you are on Instagram, you can follow Fred at Fred underscore North. And if you go on to rotarywingshow.com and look for episode 86, I've got links there to the list of films that Fred has been involved in and links to several other magazine articles online about Fred that you can go through and, and have a look at. Fred has also very kindly offered to come back in the future and answer any listener questions. So that is you, the, the listener, who is sitting there hearing my voice right now. Have a think about what you want to ask Fred, what your questions are, and feed them through to me via feedback at rotarywingshow.com. I would be stoked if I could read out some of your questions and get Fred to answer them for you on air. As you sit back and, and listen, or maybe you're, you're driving or out for a, a walk, however you get your podcasts, picture for a moment, if you would, that there is a community of people who are just like you and just like me that are listening in to find out more about the helicopter industry, and hearing the same stories that you are hearing. If you've got something cool that you are doing or that you're involved in that is related to helicopters, get in touch. Let me know. If I can help spread the word or perhaps it's connections that you need, if I can help out, then I definitely will. In terms of community, the following awesome humans are helping to get these episodes out to you. Heath, Peter, Chris, Gareth, Rendell, Jack, Tony, AJ, Jason, Michael, Brent, John, Kevin, Hal, Jake, Mark, Shannon, Eric, Kirillin, Michael, Bill, Jason. Your support is very, very much appreciated. If you've been enjoying the episodes, and especially if you want to keep me in the good books with my beautiful wife, you can find out more details about supporting the show at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. And basically, if you can spare some coffee money, 
I can throw that towards the, the hosting and bandwidth fees. How well do you reckon that you know what happens after you declare a mayday or set off your ELT or your emergency locator transmitter? In the next episode, all going well, you'll get to go behind the scenes of a rescue coordination center that looks after one of the largest areas of responsibility in the world. Catch you then. Cheers.